This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. If you're new here, welcome. We're happy to have you. If you're a longtime listener, we're also very happy to have you. Welcome. Um, so today, let me get my microphone ready because I, I guess it just wasn't, I didn't quite like it. Okay. Um, if you're new, I gather questions on my uh, podcast channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter because that is the name of the podcast that I do with my husband, Sean. And so in the community tab on Sunday mornings, I will ask for your questions. And some of you asked last week, you said, hey, you know, some of the ones that had the most thumbs ups or whatever, you didn't even pick those. And my apologies, the reason for that was that I had picked eight questions, I think it was, the week before because I recorded a podcast that is yet to go live with someone else. And frankly, we got to talking so much, we didn't get to those questions. So I just rolled those over into the next week. So, you know, unfortunately, we didn't get through as many of the questions as we usually do for last week's episode, but you can always ask them again and I will go through them and try to do my best to, you know, get as many of them as possible. Okay. Also just checking in. How are you doing? I'm, I'm okay. I, Sean and I, if you haven't, um, if I haven't talked about it here, I think I have, but we are moving and like not right now, but we're in that process where we have like a month. And so I've ordered some boxes and those just started showing up like boxes of boxes, which I know it sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. But in order to save money on the moving costs, because that's expensive, um, we've ordered, you know, boxes. And so our our apartment is just a disaster with all of these boxes. <laughs> and it starts to like, you feel it right on your system. So if I seem a little off, that's why it's not you. It's definitely me. Um, but I'm like, I'll be happy to just like get them packed up and put them off to the side and stuff like in a more organized fashion versus where they are now, which is everywhere. Okay enough about me. I'm hanging in there. We had a super hot weekend. It was like 87 degrees in Santa Monica yesterday. So Sean and I went for a walk, which was much needed. I encourage any of you, if you're kind of feeling like I am, where you start to, I call it cabin fever. I know everybody has their own word for it. When you just start to feel a little agitated in your place and it's like, ah, I just want to get out and get out, just do it. it. I know you're like, oh, I have things to do. Give yourself a half hour. You'll thank me later. It totally changed our mood yesterday, made us both feel better. So just getting out for a walk, you know, perusing, looking at other homes and people's dogs as they walk them. It's very, very fun. So I highly recommend it. Okay. Enough about me. Let's get into those questions. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie. Do you ever suspect a patient of yours has gone through abuse in their childhood before they tell you? Now, there are a ton of comments on this, but I just want to talk about the first question first. And the truth is, yes, all the time. And the reason that I do is usually other signs and symptoms that the thing that that therapists have, obviously we have our education, but another component of being a therapist is that we've seen a lot of patients. And through that, we've been able to recognize some patterns or some behaviors that we know are usually indicative or at least, very least like a red flag of abuse. Therefore, you know, when we see things like that happening again in someone else, even if they haven't told us about it, we're suspicious of it. Obviously, we don't know unless a patient tells us. And I know there's a question in this that I will 
probably answer again, but I never mention that to patients. I let them come like figure it out on their own because not everybody a is ready to talk about it or b maybe even knows it hap it's happened or ha you know repressed memories are a thing right especially when their trauma or when trauma is involved um and so there's nothing wrong with taking your time in therapy because the goal as a therapist is like to create this like safe holding environment for all that could come up for them and be there for them and so you know giving them the time to feel safe and comfortable or to come to realize what has really happened, you know, that can all take time. And that's okay. And I would never rush anybody or bring it up without them first bringing it up, if that makes sense. Okay, so a comment on this says, further, you've probably never seen a trans patient, but would you ever suspect sexual abuse as a reasoning behind experiencing body dysmorphia? Now, because I specialize in eating disorders in my private practice, I have seen my fair share of body dysmorphia patients, not gender dysphoria so much when it comes to like, you know, pe trans people that I know that that would be more what it would fall under. But um, so a couple of things. So first of all, body dysmorphia, as a result of abuse, 100% see it all the time. I've had pa patients uh, develop eating disorders, almost as directly related as we can get to abuse. Like I had a patient years ago who the abuser made a comment about how nice and soft and squishy she was or something. And she, as you might have guessed, um, started to wrap up and lose weight and not eat because she didn't want to be squishy and soft. She wanted to like keep thinking that that would keep him away, right? I totally understand. Makes sense, right? It's a coping skill. It was a way to deal with that and to also be protective, right? It was a protective mechanism. It was definitely puffer fishing. Um, so there's that. Then when it comes to trans patients, I actually haven't had a trans individual in my private practice. I have treated them, however, in the hospital setting and um, in a couple treatment centers, we've had a few trans people over the years, maybe two, three around there. Um, I don't know. I would assume everybody's different, right? I would never want to say, oh, no, you know, sexual abuse could never be the reason that they experience gender dysphoria. I think that that could definitely be it, right? If you are a male and you were abused, you might think if I was a female, it wouldn't have happened or vice versa. If you're a, ma a female and you're abused, you could think if I was a male, it wouldn't happen. And that could lead to thoughts or issues with your own gender, right? And not liking the the sex that you were born with and so wanting to change that. I could see that and that would make sense. Now, another question on top of this, it said, great question. And how as a therapist would you go about trying to get the patient to tell you if they had experienced abuse? Now, what I mentioned earlier is kind of how I would go about it, just uh, giving them time to get comfortable. Um, I would I ask questions about you know, things in the past, and we're kind of looking at relationships with parents and caregivers and siblings, and it can come out that way. Um, I ask a ton of questions to my patients, sometimes probably too many, and they get annoyed. Um, so that's really how I, I would never ask directly. I think that that is too much too fast. That can cause dissociation, flashbacks. I've even um, heard from other colleagues of mine, and I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but a colleague of mine, this is years ago, because I'm, I'm part of this peer, it's like a support system we call it the journal club but it's really not a journal club it's more like uh peer support and peer what's the word i'm looking for consultation consultation group um anyway we get together and one of my peers in that group said that they had asked directly because they were super suspicious of it and asked and the patient never came back and so i've always been very aware of that and i would be afraid of scaring someone away because they're like i'm not ready to talk about that again too much too fast right we don't want to re-traumatize or overwhelm someone. We want them to feel held and okay. And as 
safe slash neutral as we can get it, right? Now, another comment on this said, also, what's a therapist thinking when a patient discloses abuse that was unexpected to the therapist, like the therapist didn't see it coming? To be honest, I mean, all the time things are disclosed to me that I wasn't expecting or wasn't prepared for. And this could be for a lot of reasons. This could be because my assumptions were wrong, right? I'm only one person. I'm taking in the information you you gave to me in session, and I'm doing my best to kind of make sense of it or parse it out. And that can be good and that can be bad, right? I can be off base, which is why I ask a lot of questions, try not to make too many assumptions when I'm working with my patients. Um, so with that in mind, patients will disclose things all the time that, or it could be, sorry, I forgot where I was going with that. It could be that a patient discloses something really quickly. Like I'm of that as a patient, I'm a verbal diarrhea type person where I like come into session. I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. Like after one or two sessions of even honestly, that's, that's a lie, Katie, you're lying. It's like the first session. I just dump everything, frankly, because I get tired of holding it in and dealing with it myself. And I come to therapy to just like vent. And so even before I've decided if I like him or not, I'm like, Bleh, here it is. So, you know, that has happened on the flip side too, where I have patients who come in for one session and dump everything. And so that can be, it's unexpected, right? How could you expect it? And when, what I'm thinking, honestly, is, is usually trying to take notes of the important things and making sure I ask follow-up questions without overwhelming them. So I'm unfortunately probably taking a lot of notes, if not mental, actually writing them out. Because I am of the belief, and I know different therapists have different techniques and thoughts about this, but I do not bring a computer out when a patient is there. It just feels very cold to me. So I have my little clipboard and I have like a legal notepad and I just take some notes and then I have this little hole punch and I put that into your file. Um, I know that people are like, you should be, you know, scanning those and putting those into, you know, online stuff. Mm, I haven't done that yet. Maybe I will. Who knows? I prefer paper. I'm old school. So anyway, so there's that. And so I don't really, I'm not really thinking, because the thing about being a therapist is that the, as much as possible, we withhold judgment so that we can hear you and we can let you process it out. And we can ask questions to get more information. And so there's no, I mean, shock, I guess sometimes you're, you're surprised, but it always just gives, it, it's almost like, yeah, have you ever done one of those paintings when you're a kid? That's not really a painting at all. It's like you put warm water on a brush and as you paint it over, it like reveals the stuff underneath. When I was a nanny of little kids, we used to do this all the time. And so they feel like they're really painting, but they're really just like putting water and it's revealing what it is. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Anyways, I feel like that's what therapy is. And I only know what they tell me. So it's like whatever they have stroked their paintbrush across with uh, water, I'm able to see. And when someone tells me something I'm not expecting, yes, I'm surprised because I wasn't expecting it, but I'm just reveling in the photo that is taking shape and trying to, you know, with the best of my ability foresee where this is going so that I can come up with the right tools and techniques and questions moving forward. So that's, I mean, that's really it. Next question says, Oh, and how do you navigate not pushing the idea on someone too quickly? I've had several therapists insist that I was abused as a child. And they would say things like, well, why are you like this then? Oh my God, that's so rude. And when I denied it and would get mad and leave therapy thinking they weren't listening to me. Uh, my, my current therapist, I suspect, had the same thoughts as the others, but she never really brought it up until I did, which took years. That's my stance. Now, yes, I may allude to things, but I wouldn't directly ever ask. And then I would never say, first of all, as therapists, I don't know if anybody else out there as a therapist can just 
hear me on this, we're taught to not ask why. Why feels very judgmental, feels very directive, overwhelming, right? Well, why are you like that? You're like, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's what I'm seeing you for, right? It just feels icky. I don't like it. And I wouldn't want to ask that. A better question would be, what do you think your symptoms are related to if it's not abuse? That's a much better question. Although, again, it's just not the avenue that I would choose to go down. It would be, again, I would, I could ask questions about their childhood. Um, Say, tell me a little bit about, you know, middle school. What was that like for you? Because that's usually difficult for a lot of people because it's like puberty age or uncomfortable. Or if a patient tells me, because I'll say like, well, when do you remember going to school? And like, how'd you grow up? Like, tell me a little bit about your, your early memories. And if a patient's like, oh, I don't have any of those. I don't remember anything until the age of 12. Well, that gives us some indication. And then, you know, I'll use some tools and, and some homework stuff to try to get more information about that. Like everything from photos to do they have any old journals or I'll ask other questions about like when their memory starts to come back and we'll work our way backward. All I'm saying is I don't rush it. I would never say, well, why are you like this then? Because that's super rude and hurtful and judgmental. And I'm glad that you left. And now your current therapist, of course, probably suspected things, but again, did it properly, gave it, gave you time till you felt comfortable. And then you could speak up and talk about it when you were ready, because that's just so much more therapeutic. And then um, we have two more follow-ups. Another question says, is it possible to not even register that you've been through something abusive in your childhood years and have a therapist bring it up and um, let the patient register that in session or bring them to some kind of realization? Hope that makes sense. 100% totally makes sense. Um, It is possible, again, because uh, repressed memories and trauma memories can be really confusing and we cannot feel safe to feel them. So again, we repress them. All that's super, super common. And so, of course, we may not even know that we've been through something abusive, but I wouldn't, as a therapist, bring it up directly. Be more something that we stumble upon together because we're doing work on, I don't know, trying to figure out where your anxiety comes from, right? We're digging into the past and we're digging into other experiences and other people in your life. Like a lot of my patients who struggle with anxiety in particular, I want to know more about their close relatives. Like, hey, does your mom have anxiety? What about that? You know, I'll ask all sorts of things. And so that could bring about something like that. And then, you know, then we'd just work on containing that, making sure that they're okay, giving them tools to help regulate their nervous system when they're not in session and all of that stuff. So, so yeah, that's, that's, those are my thoughts on that. And then the final question says another follow-up. Do you ever have patients who do not want to admit that they've been abused as a child because they still love their abuser and want a relationship with them? Is that normal? And yes, 100% uh, that is normal. Um, I haven't had a current patient do that, but I have had a a past patient at one of the Eden Store Treatment Centers who did do that. Um, And, but the abuse, the interesting thing about her situation is that the abuse was well known because and I'm not, I don't want to give away too much. So there was something that happened that made it impossible for other people in their life to not, they ever, someone found, found out and told everybody essentially. And, um, and she still loved him, the abuser. And that's very normal. And I've talked about that. I don't, in quite a few different videos over the years when it comes to abuse, but it's that trauma bonding. And also the fact that when we're at such a young and impressionable age, and we're told sometimes by our abusers, we're told they love us and that, you know, this is how people really show love, right? We can be manipulated and confused about what 
what love really is or what relationships really look like. And that can be hard for us to shake. And as the person who was abused, it's, it's not your fault. And that's why shame gets in there and like pulls us down. We're like, something's wrong with us. Why do we love this person? I just want you to know that it makes sense based on what a lot of abusers do. And the fact that we are so impressionable and we can be so easily influenced and manipulated. Like uh, grooming is a thing that we've talked about in the past where uh, one person manipulates or I, I guess it's it manipulates the best word, but it's like, they, there are certain behaviors that someone will engage in with another, a child or someone younger than them that's inappropriately young as a means to kind of uh, exploit that later. So we'll try to tell them that we're friends. It's a slow grow, right? We try to tell them that we're friends and that this is what normal people do. And then they slowly start to, um, I guess, expose us to some sexualized content and be like, oh, you know, um, like changing to get into swimsuits or uh, changing to try on clothes at a clothing store. There's a lot of different ways we can, that uh, someone who's grooming us can do to get us used to that a little bit. It's almost like they're slowly desensitizing us and they're uh, slowly manipulating us and abusing us so that they can be, abuse us even more in the future. And so things happen like that where we, it happens so slowly over time that we as children don't really, we don't understand and it can be really confusing. And I don't want to get, too off on a tangent about that. But yes, it is very common that children don't want to uh, admit being abused for many reasons. One could be that they love their abuser. Two could be that they want to, the guilt and shame associated with abuse is really heavy and thick. And, you know, they have those thoughts that like, I did something wrong, right? I should have said something. I didn't say anything uh, sooner. I was afraid, you know, because they told me they would kill my brother or something. So I never told anybody. And if I told somebody, you know, we can take ownership. So there's guilt embarrassment and shame all wrapped up in it. So there's a lot of reasons why people don't admit abuse. Also, we can feel like something must be, again, the shame, but something must be wrong with us for that to happen. Or maybe we did something to cause it. You know, there's, it's very, it's, I think it's hard for people who haven't been in situations like that, or at least worked with people who've been in situations like that to understand, but that is very common. Okay. Okay. I hope I answered all your questions, but in short, Yes, I have suspected a patient of mine to gone, have gone through abuse in their childhood before they tell me. And a lot of it's just waiting for them to be ready to tell me. Because the one thing about being a therapist that I think all mental health professionals would agree with out there is that we don't work on our own timeline. We work on our patient's timeline. Now, obviously, if a patient isn't putting in any effort, isn't doing the homework, isn't being honest in session, that's not really therapeutic. And I'll, I'll actually tell them that, you know, I'm wondering if there's even if they even need to come to therapy anymore, because they clearly aren't invested, right? So there's things like that. But we can't force our patients to tell us something or move faster than they want. It just doesn't work. That, that actually can be worse for them long term. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And that is, how can one deal with not being able to work or learn in their dream career? For context, my grades are fine. But for other reasons, the university won't let me. I want to be a teacher, but I have a speech issue. Minimal improvement in speech therapy in the past few years. Now, when I was younger, there was more improvement. How can one deal with the failure? I know I won't be able to fulfill my dream soon. And I know I'm holding on to a bit of hope that one day, um, that, that I will one day, but only because I can't let myself think that I'll never achieve my dream. Even something similar, I won't necessarily be allowed to do. 
Um, it says, I gave an example for myself, but of course, answer in general for others' benefit in different situations about not being able to achieve their dreams. Now, there was a lot of chatter in the comments of this. And I, if any of you out there are in the United States, you know that it's actually illegal because we have uh, disability acts in place to allow people with any kind of issue, like a speech impediment or difficulty, you know, a speech issue, that they still can work in the field that they want. They're, you know, there's a lot of laws to protect people to allow so that this doesn't happen. However, the person who asked this question said in the comments below that they are in a different country and that they it is legal for them to say that they cannot teach. Now, I don't know my initial thought, and I'll get into the not being able to work in your dream career, but my initial thought is actually to look for alternative options. So a lot of times we have like this one, I'll even use myself as an example. Let's say that, you know, well, it is true. Like I started out as a therapist working in private practice and didn't know that YouTube was a thing. But a lot of therapists right now who are coming of age, finishing school, know that YouTube is a thing and social media is a thing. And so they could decide instead of, okay, maybe the dream job was to be a therapist and work with kids in schools. But hey, this other thing, YouTube exists, that there's no nobody to stop me from doing the thing that I love. Maybe I jump over to YouTube and I educate children and kids in school about things that would be happening to children in school. Maybe that's how I, you know, do the job that I want to do. Maybe I don't actually do clinical work or even maybe get my license. Maybe I just have my education and I apply it to be an educator online, right? There's all these pivots. And I only bring that up because when I read this and the fact that it is actually legal in your country, because just like the person who commented, I can't believe this is legal. It's not legal. Those were my thoughts as well. Um, but because it is, I would think there probably are other ways to still do the thing that you want to do whether it is through social media and online resources or teaching at a different school, right? I mean, I I used to volunteer my time back when I was a kid uh, in, in summers and in high school and weekends and stuff like that to uh, watch over children who were very high needs to not only give the kids a place and a way to engage with other children or high needs, because a lot of times, unfortunately, children who aren't able to participate in school in a regular way, like other, you know, quote unquote, normal kids uh, miss out on some socialization and miss out on certain activities. And so we made things for different abilities and we would spend time with them and they would get to spend time with each other. And it was, it was really helpful, not only for the parents to get a break, you know, but also for the kids. And so I used to donate my time there and that could be a place that you taught. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's other places and other things and other ways to still do what you love. It might just not look exactly like you think. And so in this particular scenario, that's how I would deal with it is I wouldn't, I would find another option because there are more options out there. And, but, okay, let's say that that's just not an option. There's no way we can't, can't, can't the grieving is what we're going to have to do in order, in order to deal with this, to cope with what's happening, right? If we have a dream career or a dream in our life in general, right? If we have a hope and a dream of something that we want to do, and then all of a sudden we find out we can't, ugh, it's devastating. We're going to have to grieve, let ourselves feel it, right? And I know that sucks and it doesn't make it better immediately, but it will prevent us from becoming angry and resentful and not being able to enjoy the career that we end up being in or the life that we end up being in really. And so 
I would just watch some of my videos about grief. And the, the part about grief that I want to just let you know of is that it's not linear, meaning it doesn't just go through one step to the next. I know a lot of people talk about the five stages of grief. And while I do, as a person who's grieved a lot in my life, I do believe those stages are there. And they, that is kind of the process. They're not in order. You don't go, you know, from bargaining and denial into I forget exactly what they are in order, but one's like depression. And then so you don't go through those that way. You pop in and out at the beginning. You just feel kind of a mixture of depression as well as like the bargaining um, and the denial. But I don't know. I mean, it's a mess, right? And so just know that if you feel that way and it feels like it's all all over the place, that's okay. That's part of your grief. Let yourself feel it. Give yourself an opportunity to be sad and then consider what else could bring you joy because Yes, we can all have dream careers. As an FYI, my dream career was to be a school psychologist and work with children. Um, and then I had a job with children, ended up not being the right fit for me. I did not enjoy it in the way that I thought. So I'm just throwing it out there that, hey, even though it's a dream career, sometimes our uh, our goals change. And based on more information, we can change our minds, right? I had a video about that recently go live about like, we don't have to have it all figured out because you can learn more have more life experience and realize, oh, I actually don't like that job. Um, and so being open to that is good too. But but really grieving it is is my answer. But also I really think there's got to be a way we can find to allow you to do it anyway. Um, now there's a comment on this that said, as a follow-up question, how does one cope with guilt if you can't pursue your dream career anymore and it's actually your own fault because of failure in school and self-sabotaging? To be honest, okay, there's a couple of things with this. So working on like self-sabotage is just acknowledging it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with going back and retaking courses and like riding the ship. Um, I had a ton of friends in, in college who either really struggled in college, being away from home just did not suit them or um, had a tough time like adjusting and, and even had friends that like really went into the party scene for a while and like, you know, being drunk on the weekdays doesn't really make it easy for you to participate in class on the, you know, the following days. Um, we're able to like retake courses over the summer and kind of like write the ship so that they could end up doing what they really wanted to do. And so I would encourage you again to look for those pivot options and ways that you could still do it. Um, and then show yourself some compassion and get into therapy, first of all, because if this is what's happening, if you're, uh, you know, failing school because of self-sabotage and, and the way that it's really sabotage comes from, it's a defense mechanism, but it's born out of our thoughts. And then the way we feel about our thoughts and we behave in a certain way, it's cognitive behavioral therapy would change your fucking life. And I can't encourage you enough to get in it because that would really, really help you and help you come to terms then with that guilt that you're feeling because the guilt, while it can seem like it's, it's well-placed and it's warranted, I think when you're able to see how much your thoughts affect how you're feeling and what's going on and, and all of that, I think you'll recognize it's actually kind of misplaced because, you know, maybe growing up, no one ever supported us or we never learned how to properly manage our emotions or identify them or talk to ourselves. There's a lot going on there and being a little bit compassionate about that and figuring out ways to prevent yourself from doing it in the future will really help. And again, I just don't think it's ever too late. People like to shut doors on things and be like, well, I can't be a insert thing because of whatever. And I mean, sure, that might be true in the case of professional athlete. But other than that, I don't really think that many things 
are that time sensitive. Like, I don't know if you remember the movie, old movie, I think it was called Patch with Robin Williams, where he became a doctor like way later in life, went back to school. I had a ton of um, older people in my graduate school program, you know, like five or six people. It was a small program. If you guys don't know, graduate programs are not very large. It's not like hundreds of people. I think there were like 40 of us or 30 of us. So we had like five people who were over the age of, I don't know, 40, 45, who wanted to become therapists. That's, there's, it's never too late to pursue your dreams. It's never too late to, to make a change. It's never too late to, to decide where you want to live. You know, don't, I, I don't like these limitations or these like shutting the door, shutting the book on that. I feel like we do that to ourselves and I give you full permission to rethink, restart and redo because the only thing that's final is what we say is final and what we act out of as final. And you could still do it. I believe you can. Okay. Let's move into question number three. And that says, hi, Katie, can you talk about being totally overwhelmed with the daily maintenance of adulthood? Oh, I can, I can talk about this. It's like a never ending list of things to do to keep myself healthy, not feel like a, I love this question says to keep myself healthy, not look like a hobo every day, keep my house clean, maintain cars, keep going to work, etc. And I don't even have kids yet. Me neither. And I feel this in my bones. I wake up every morning and think, God, I just want to do nothing today. But I can't because even on days off, I have at least I have to at least eat and then clean the thing that I used to make the food, etc. I feel exhausted. And I'm not sure if it's depression, but I'm actually really happy with my life. It's just the feeling of never getting a true break. I hope this makes sense. I love this question. And I feel it, like I said, in my bones. And the truth about it is that being an adult does feel like that, right? Like that we just never really get a break. But there are ways that we can offer ourselves breaks. Now, it sounds to me because a break to me actually doesn't Ha it's, it's more a mental break. I need to not have to be responsible for someone or something all the time, right? Like I'm responsible to you guys, right? Like I'm responsible to my viewers because I have made a commitment to put out videos and, and I hold myself accountable. It's also my job and how Sean and I pay our bills, right? So there's certain things that I am, I do hold myself accountable to, but everybody needs vacations because we're not robots and something that I will actually be doing. I don't know if it'll be right away, but this year, I'm going to take a vacation in July and I'm not going to be posting videos. Now I've never done that before, which I know sounds crazy and it is kind of crazy. I used to just bulk film um, so that I never missed any dates and things like that. But I think it will be healthy for Sean and I to actually take a break, especially now because we're doing two podcasts and a video each and every week, not to mention TikToks and all sorts of shit. Um, and just not having that. So I think, so I have a couple of thoughts. Okay. So my first thought is, what is it that's stressing you out? We're going to have to nail this down because you can actually do nothing. Um, you can stay in bed and watch Netflix all day if you want. Yes, you're still going to have to eat. You can order food in or you can do something for future use. So the day before you do your nothing, you can prepare food. So that all you got to do is pop it in the microwave. I mean, sure, you have to clean the thing that you eat out of. But again, I think we're that's where I'll get into that in a second. I think we have to find a way to give you a break that feels like a break for you. And I just need you to put some thought, not judgment, into what that looks like. Now, if the energy it takes for you to just clean the dishes that you ate off of, or even contemplate getting out of bed, there's nothing wrong with taking a few days where you don't get out of bed, by the way, I haven't, there's no judgment around that. But if you have trouble with that on the regular, and the thought of even cleaning something, everything just feels like a burden and like a lot of effort, 
I am going to push back on the, I don't think it's depression because I'm actually really happy with my life. A lot of people who are depressed are happy with their lives. They just don't enjoy the things they used to as much. Um, there's changes in our sleep and our appetite. It can be difficult for us to concentrate. We can feel a little bit more irritable. And I know you're thinking, well, Katie, all those symptoms would mean that I'm not happy with my life. You might not see it that way. I can't tell you how many of my patients have come in over the years and said, you know, but I'm really happy. Like I'm, I'm doing my dream job and I have a good relationship and like good on paper. I always call it. I'm like, you're just good on papering me. Yes. Your life sounds great. Yes. You're happy with the things that are, that are working out, but the low, un, just underneath that, the very thin veneer is the fact that like you don't find fulfillment or you feel completely exhausted by the things that you are accountable for or dedicated to. So we need to reevaluate. I honestly, one of the reasons I'm so excited for Sean and I to move is I really feel like personally, I need this shakeup. I need to be out of my comfort zone. I need to be in a, in more space. I feel very creatively stuffed and, and like, bleh, and it'll be good for me to shake out of it. And I think we all kind of need that. And so with regard to this, I just have to challenge that a little bit where I think that like good on paper happiness may not mean complete fulfillment, you feeling good about everything that you're doing and the amount of energy you're putting into things. Because again, I really also, sorry, and this just popped in my head because I'm just, we're just free thinkers here, um, is that 2020 slash 2021 has been extremely stressful and super exhausting. And I think we all would agree that because we couldn't take vacations in the way that we used to, or um, whatever that looks like for you, right? Even if the vacation for Sean and I, we usually will go into Palm Springs and stay at a hotel because hotels cook your food and you don't have to cook or clean. I love it. Um, and so that we would take a week. And it was usually like in June or July because it's super hot there. Nobody wants to go there and it's super cheap. And so we used to go also our anniversaries in July. So we would go out at that time. Um, we would take like a week and take a vacation, but because of COVID, you can't do all that shit. And so we missed out on that for a year. And so I just want to acknowledge that for you also, because that could be part of this. And I do truly believe that as a result of COVID, a lot of us are experiencing some mild, if not severe symptoms of anxiety or depression. And that could be the case here too. So just be a little bit more curious and not judgmental about it. I'd be curious what a day of doing nothing really looks like and why there's this urge for you to like not leave bed, that that's the do nothing. Because while I think all of us need more rest, we there are ways you could incorporate that. That I'm, I'm just suspicious of it. So, so be curious and let me know what you find out. And then there was a comment on this one that said, I relate to this, except I have a four-year-old. As much as I try, I feel like it's never enough. That sounds like judgment. How do I keep going for her and teach her to enjoy life when it seems never ending? Again, the, the, I feel like it's never enough. Yes. Children are, I don't have children, so I don't want to pretend to know your experience, but I know enough just being an auntie to all of my friends, kids is that there's always something, but it's all in the way that we talk to ourselves about it in the way that we, because remember going back to like, we have these uh, thoughts then we have feelings about those thoughts and then we have behaviors that attach to them. Does that make sense? And we go round and round and round. And often these thoughts are, it's never enough or I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough because I honestly think what could maybe help you is taking a little break from social media. Because if I see one more post, I'm not even a mother, right? I'm not even pregnant. I haven't even had a child. 
if I see one more of those posts of like a flat bellied woman saying like six months postpartum, blah, blah, holding a baby and then toting all this shit about like reorganize it, you know, the, it, it frustrates me because I feel frustrated for the people out there on the other end who are feeling bad about it and aren't able to manage. And it's not that I'm mad at the people posting because they have every right to share how they feel. I'm just saying that comparison factor is very dangerous and we need to be very aware of what we allow ourselves to digest because something's feeding into this. It's never enough thought. And I'd be very curious about that. And I would encourage you to change those thoughts little by little, recognize what they are and bridge statement yourself out of it. And then also, and someone did leave a comment saying this and they are correct. There is an, it's something that's very important for all of us is to schedule time off. Now, if we have a little one, that time off might be because they go to bed at 7.30. Give yourself 30 minutes to do absolutely nothing. Or what is it that you really want to do? Are there ways, if it has to happen during the day, are there ways that we can get a babysitter or have our partner look after the child and we get to go do that thing and we take turns? Some of my friends are really great at dividing the, the time off with each other. Like I really, you know, for instance, let's say uh, your back is killing you and you're like, I really need a massage. Okay, your partner can watch the kids while you get a massage. And then, you know, a week later, whatever, they get to go out with their friends or they get to go do their thing while you watch them. And, and we can make time and space for that. We just have to plan it. And as an adult, it kind of sucks that we have to plan the, these things and prepare for these things. But we do. Because... There's no other adult that's taking care of us. So we are the adult. The buck stops here, right? So that's those are my thoughts. I hope that's helpful. I definitely feel this myself also all the time. And for me, again, it's the scheduling. Like Sean and I are already talking about, again, like I said, in July, we're going to take some time off and go dark. And I just, I just need it. And maybe it's an opportunity for you to do the same. Maybe I can, you know, prompt that or help you feel okay doing that because we're not robots. 2020 slash 2021 was a lot. And I think we're all feeling the weight of it. So I give you full permission to not get everything done, to leave clothes on the floor and beds unmade and order in. And that's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. doesn't make you a bad mother or father. It makes you human. And also children need to see that too. I think it's okay to talk about it. And, uh, you know, if your children are old enough, obviously, I know four-year-olds and somebody said two-year-olds, maybe not so much that, but, you know, I think it's okay for children to know that, hey, you know, mom doesn't have it all figured out all the time or dad doesn't always know what he's doing, but I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to feel how I feel and I'm going to, you know, move forward. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts. I hope that's helpful. Okay. Moving on to question number four. And it reads, Hi, Katie. I have recently gotten into my dream school for my dream career. Yay! But I'm unable to feel happy. Hmm. Every time I achieve something great and have told my parents, they always had sarcastic responses to the effect of, you could have done better. Wow. Never followed up by congratulations. And I know it's a joke, but I am incapable of feeling happy for great accomplishments now. Ooh, you got to let them know. How do I have a beneficial conversation saying those words are hurtful without them saying that they're only joking? Thank you for all that you do. I think, first of all, uh, my husband is like this. So Sean, not with me necessarily. He's very, very earnest about things, but sometimes he can be a little too sarcastic for my taste as, you know, more of a highly sensitive person. And so I will mention him. I'm like, you can't say that. That's That could be hurtful. You know, they could be very excited. And they'd be like, but that's just who I am. And I'm like, sure you know I kind of negotiate with him I'm like 
say congratulations first. And then when they mention it again, because they probably will, then you can make your joke. But let's not come out the gate with a joke because that's really hurtful. And with his friends, I let it slide because they're obviously his friends and they know him. But with my friends, I I hold the line. So I think the best way to have a conversation with them about this is to say something to the effect of, you guys, I love you and you know that. And I love that you're sarcastic and you joke a lot. But so, right, we're hug and roll. I always think that's the best way to offer a boundary or constructive criticism is a hug and a roll. So the hug is, I love you guys. You're the best. I love your sense of humor. I know how sarcastic you like to be. However, we roll away and we say something to the effect of, but when you make jokes about actual things I'm proud of and accomplishments that are important to me, it makes it hard for me to get excited because there's that moment let down before I know you're being sarcastic. And then I kind of laugh, but then I never got to be excited with you. I never got to see you like get into that zone of congratulations and excitability that I'm really craving. And then they might say, you know, but that's just how we are. And that's just how we joke. And you could say, I know that. And I love that about you again, hug and roll. I know that. And I love that about you. But sometimes like in the case, then you give an example, like in the case of me getting into my dream school for my dream career, in that case, what I really needed wasn't sarcasm. I really just needed you to get excited with like for me or with me. And people can push back and people cannot agree. But the thing that I would encourage you to notice, because family, family's family, and unless you want to cut them out of your lives, we can't really do that. But when it comes to friends and people we spend time with, if if our needs aren't getting met, and if we've expressed a, a boundary, or we've told them what, something that's hurtful, and they just keep doing it, then the decision, so we've done our part, then the, the decision is up to us on whether or not we want to stay in that relationship, and whether or not we think it's a relationship that is worth being in. And yes, I know it's hard. And I will be honest with you all, if you are younger, if you're in like your teens or early 20s, I have to tell you, in the next 10, 15 years, a lot of those friends that you think are your best friends are going to like fall off because of things like this, where you try to, as an adult, as we get older, you try to express things that you like and don't like, and they just can't hang. It's just, we're not the same. You grew apart. Things are different. Other things are important to you that aren't important to them or whatever. Um, those things are going to happen. And so I really encourage you now, and I know this is your parents and I'm talking about friends, but I'm just trying to make it more broad for everybody. But I do think the hug and roll and the boundary setting, the re-hug and roll situations, just think of it like that. Think of how can I compliment them because I do love them and I do appreciate their jokes and their funny sense of humor is part of why I am who I am. However, in some cases, I find it kind of hurtful. And, you know, yes, you could say, hey, but that's me and I'm acting this way. But no, your feelings are very valid. I don't think anybody would say, that you're just supposed to laugh it off and never be able to celebrate your successes. Cause that, you know, that's crazily frustrating. And that would be super invalidating and could potentially harm our own self-worth and confidence and things like that. And I don't want to see that happen to you. So have those difficult conversations, practice saying them over and over. So you're comfortable and just always think of the hug and roll. How do I compliment them first and then offer some feedback about the boundaries that I want to set? Because the compliments go a long way and help people listen to you because everybody likes to listen and like hear things about themselves. So if you start with that, you're good. Okay, let's move on to question number five. Oh, also actually just track back a little bit. 
if they say that we're only joking, I want you to role play that out. So imagine them saying, you know, but we're only joking. How would you hug and roll from that? I would think something like hug. I know you are. I love your guys' sense of humor. However, again, however, you know, in big scenarios like this, I'd really, I just need a little bit of celebration time. That would be really helpful. Thank you. You know, um, I also find a thank you goes a long way because you're like thanking them before they've actually done the thing. And it's not that, you know, it's not us being presumptuous. It's like you're thanking them for understanding. And a lot of times people will be like, they'll, they'll take that as a nice like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, yeah, I do hear you. You know, it can sometimes go a long way to and kind of push that little bit farther. OK, let's move into question number five. And that says, hi, Katie, I hope you're having an amazing day. So far, so good. Thanks for asking. Or Yeah, thanks for saying that. Uh, it says, my question is how to deal with missing a therapist and does it ever even stop? I've been out of therapy for over a year now and I still miss my therapist and think about her every day. When I was really struggling, she helped me so much and was actually the first person who really listened to me and taught me how to cope with my anxiety. She was really amazing and I uh, just really had that connection with her. Now, when I'm having a tough time, I tend to imagine what she would tell me in that situation. That's totally great and helpful. Is it normal that I still miss her even after over a year? And how can I deal with that? Thanks for all that you do. Okay, now there's a comment, another question underneath this. It's like a follow-up, but I love this question. So missing a therapist does stop. Um, I missed my first therapist, not my first therapist, probably my second or third. Rebecca was her name and I've talked about her off and on because she worked at Pepperdine. And then she was kind of forced out and then she was going to open her own for a little bit. And then she decided to retire because, and she was, she was like only a couple years away from retirement. So it was very frustrating for her, very frustrating for me. And I was very upset and I missed her for a while. Now, I think the, when you're struggling to think about, you know, what she would say to you, like, I think that's great when you're having a tough time. Like you imagine what she would tell you, that's a resource. And I don't want you to lose that. However, I think there might be something a little bit more complicated here. Like part of me feels like maybe there's a little bit of an unhealthy attachment or um, a little bit of like complicated grief, or maybe we've never allowed ourselves to grieve. And so that's kind of where my brain goes with this is like, sorry, I had a tickle hair. If you're watching, I was reaching around. My hair was tickling me. Um, my, my brain goes to letting yourself grieve like journaling about it, writing about how much you miss her, why you miss her, what were some of the things that you really appreciated about her, letting yourself cry, letting yourself feel sad. That's all fine and perfectly healthy and good and giving yourself that opportunity. And then secondly, moving past. So, okay, why did therapy end and, and how much had she helped me and like appreciating all of the effort so that you can allow yourself to like move forward. That's another part of it. But then if we get into the unhealthy attachment component, if we feel like maybe we were thinking of this therapist like a mom or like the sister we never had or like that best friend, if we're putting them in that kind of space and thinking of them in that way, that can mean a lot of different things. But the number one way to kind of overcome this is to do some of that inner child work, meaning consider what little you needed and wanted and and talk to her, let her be heard, hear her out, listen to what she has to say. What is, you know, what was, what were the things that you as a child wished people had heard or understood or wanted people to do for you? Like, let's get into that zone in that headspace. Consider what she'd have to say from that age to you as adult you. And what can you offer her as adult you? Because inner child, for instance, like even my inner child, 
a lot of times feels like she feels things so intensely. She's too sensitive for things. She's told a lot of times she's like uh, too adult, like thinks about things too much, overthinks. My mom used to always say that to me that I overthink things. Um, she would say like, you're ruminating about that and you know, it's making you more upset. So stop kind of thing. And I'd be like, I can't, um, I'm, I'm a thinker. And so anyway, um, you know, little me wants to be told that, that she's important and that her feelings are valid and it's okay to be an overthinker, but don't, you know, don't let it ruin your days. Like you, you have to decide to move on and that she needs some of that support and that coddling and that comfort. And I'm sure little you need something like that too, in your own way, because of your own experience. So think about it and try to offer those things to young you. Maybe it's through writing letters. Maybe it's through conversations you have with yourself. Maybe it's through the way that you treat yourself now. I mean, there's a ton of different ways that we can make this work and make this better. But I, when we miss a therapist for, for a long period of time, it's, it's either like we're not allowing ourselves to grieve. So we're like held in this, you know, spot or it's that attachment which we know is usually born out of like not having someone when we were growing up that felt like filled the need or offered the support that we really required at the time if that makes sense okay now the comment below and the questions following up on this said hey mine might be a bit different to yours but I was wondering why do I imagine my therapist and teacher's reactions to anything I do or wanting them wanting them to see me when I'm struggling is this attachment based or just wanting someone to talk? Uh, oh, someone, someone to talk to. Thanks so much. I think this is probably attachment based. That's my, my spidey senses feel that because when you want them to see you struggling, that means we want their care. And again, considering what younger you wanted or maybe what you now needs and finding ways to soothe that need and offer that need. If we're needing more support and more um, comfort from a parent, if we have a healthy relationship with a parent and it's not an abusive one, can we ask them for that? Can we uh, set up scenarios where we'll get that need met? You know, are there ways if we're looking for, uh, you know, let's say more validation from a parent, can we do some things really well around the house or at school and show it to them and, and know that we're going to elicit that response we need? I know that a lot of people could say, oh, well, Katie, that's like kind of being manipulative. No, that's using the resources and support that we have to get those needs met doing something good and wanting a parent to say, Oh my God, I'm so proud of you. That's not being manipulative. That's just a basic human need is to be seen, to be heard and to be validated. It's just part of who we are. It's part of how we're made up. And that's kind of the problem with um, those of us who struggle with BPD or attachment issues or even complex PTSD. We can tell ourselves that how we think and feel is completely wrong when in fact it's not. And it's really difficult for us to see that those thoughts and feelings aren't wrong because how we think and feel is valid, right? Something happened. We had a reaction. Did we overreact? It's possible, but that still doesn't take away those feelings. We have to identify them, acknowledge them and find a way to cope with them. But that invalidation leads us to, to feeling, you know, like we want people to see us struggling or maybe we want more attention or more validation. We can look outward for the thing that we're not even able to give ourselves. And so I'm getting off on a tangent, but you hear me. Um, I think that those are all the ways that we can kind of work through it. And hopefully some of that is helpful. And I have videos about inner child work. I have videos about, you know, emotionally absent mother and emotionally absent father and all sorts of things like that. So you can search for those on my channel. Let's move into question number six. And that says, hi, Katie. So my therapist left for maternity leave in February and she's supposed to be coming back in May. 
She said that we were naturally getting close to the end whenever she left. So we went ahead and did all of the end therapy things. I was seeing her because of my eating disorder and anxiety, and I've been feeling the best I've ever felt recently, but I'm still finding myself wanting to go back to therapy. I find myself thinking of problems that I'm having and if they're big enough to see her again when she comes back. I can't tell if this is attachment or if I just want some more closure. Thank you for all that you do. I guess the question here, so this is a great question. And first of all, I'm proud of you and I'm glad that you're feeling the best you've ever felt recently and you were already like naturally transitioning out. That's all awesome. So excited for you. But the one to go back to therapy, I guess you'd have to answer these questions for yourself. Like be honest, right? In secret, in your, in your journal. Consider, do I want to go back to therapy because I miss the feeling of it? I miss my therapist or I can't seem to cope on my own and I need more support. Now, this might be kind of complicated. You might feel like, well, it's kind of, you know, because it, it sounds like it's definitely not that you need more support. It sounds like you're actually doing really well. But I'm curious about like, is it because I, um, I miss the feeling of therapy or I miss my therapist? Because then if we say, oh, I miss my therapist, it's not that I, you know, miss just the therapy. Like if you, let's say right now, before she comes back, if I was like, okay, we'll just go see somebody else. Would you want to do that? And I know a lot of people are like, but you don't, it's, that's different. Cause like starting with new therapists is different. But if that thought is like, well, that's not what I want. Right. Ugh, you know, it has nothing to do with like, oh, that'd be a first appointment. I don't want to start over. If it's just like, that doesn't fill like fill the need then I think it might be something in attachment based. And so what I would encourage you to do is like consider kind of what I was talking about in the previous question is, is the, the inner child of you or what, what uh, purpose did that therapist serve? Or what hole maybe did it fill? And what about it are we missing and wishing that we could get now? Does that make sense? Because sometimes therapists can offer, I mean, my therapist offers me kind of a uh, cause she's not mother. She's not mothering me, but she's, she's like, like a mentor that I've always wanted. I've never been able to find someone who has time to like fully mentor me. And that's something that I don't know. It's something that I, even as a kid, like child, like me always liked to have someone older that could like help me out and help me see the way. And a lot of times it was teachers. Right. And so I crave that. But if someone told me, Hey, I could set you up with a, a mentor. If I couldn't, if my therapist on maternity leave, I'd be like, that's awesome. Perfect. You know? And I know that that's different, but I'm just throwing it out there because you have to think about what it is and why you miss that relationship and what about it. And be honest with yourself. Um, I don't think it's it's possible that you might need some more closure, but you did all of the end of therapy things and you're feeling the best you ever had recently. So I, I, I'm really suspicious of the attachment. And that's where my like spidey senses slash the red flags I see are leading us to is that attachment. And so recognizing what little you needed or what the therapist gave you that you never were able to receive before. And are there ways that we can calm that or soothe that doing things in our own life do uh messages we tell ourselves like i want you to really think about it and see if if there's something there and i think based on the fact that you have a ton of tools and you're feeling really good i think you'll be able to to be honest and and recognize it and and manage it because Yes, you can go back to see her in May if you want. Like, I want you to know you have that freedom. But I want you to also consider, like, is it really necessary? Because I don't know if it is. Um, 
and no judgments also. I always always say be curious, not judgmental. But if you just think about those things and like, why is it that you miss therapy? And what is it about it that you want to see her again? Because it sounds like, you know, you want to see her again. Again, even in the language, you know, if they're big enough to see her again. Um, consider what purpose, she, what hole she filled or what purpose she served for you and, and find out. Think of, let's get creative and consider other ways that we could fill that void. And I do have, again, my video about inner child work. I think you can just get on YouTube, Katie Moore and inner child work and find it and watch it. And hopefully that's helpful. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And that says, hi, Katie, I really like my therapist and trust her. Yay, I'm so excited for you. But sometimes I wish she would prompt me more, ask me more questions as opposed to waiting for me to start speaking. There are frequent moments of silence in our sessions where I suddenly feel unprepared. Even if I know I have many cans of worms left to open, I just want her to bring them out of me. It feels so difficult diving into subjects without her leading the way. I know therapists don't want to plant things in you or steer you toward false memories, but I just feel um, more elaborative in, a, in an interview style question answer kind of format. When she's quiet and just waiting for me to come up with a subject on my own, that's when I clam up and go blank. A lot of us do. Can she still ask me questions like, were you ever abused or have you ever had any experiences you considered traumatic? You hinted at blank a few sessions ago. Are you ready to talk about it now? And then maybe play a little tennis with me based on my answers. And if I'm prompting like this, and if prompting like this would be okay, how do I let my therapist know that I want her to do more of it to keep things flowing? I don't want her to think that she been, hasn't been doing a great job. Thanks so much for your channel. It's been so unbelievably helpful for me. Of course, I'm glad. So there's a couple of questions after this. But okay, when it comes to this, um, I have a few thoughts. First of all, a lot of therapists, and we're taught to, as therapists, not work harder than our patients. And so I don't, I'm not saying this is your case. I'm just putting this out there so people understand. Um, I talked briefly at the earlier part of this podcast about how you have patients sometimes who don't do the work, aren't being honest in therapy. You, know, you find out other ways because they've contradicted themselves or whatever. Maybe don't show up or show up late or, you know, just aren't really working at therapy. And, and I will always bring up, Hey, I wonder if this is even beneficial for you. And a lot of times when I've done that, my patients will act shocked and frustrated that I would even say that. Right. So I'll get a lot of uh, defensiveness and backlash kind of where they're like, no, but why would you say that? Uh, and like, they get taken out on me, in which case it brings, you know, to question other things. But I'm just saying that like, as therapists, we're taught to not do more work. So if my patient isn't showing up, isn't really doing the homework, isn't really working on things, isn't being very forthcoming about what's happened to them, no matter what I ask, we're taught to not do more because that's feeding into some unhealthy relationship pattern that they have in their life. And I have a couple of patients who are just like classic this, where they would get mad that I wasn't doing more, but they weren't doing the work. Okay, so I want you to just be honest about your situation. Again, I'm not saying this is it, but I'm for anybody else out there. Are you showing up for therapy? Are you doing the homework? If so, if you're trying your best to engage and share what you can, then it is completely fine. And even if you're not, it's actually still fine to bring it up because your therapist will be able to talk to you about this, which I've done with many of my patients where I'm like, well, you know, I'm showing up for you the way you're showing up for me, which is you're not really participating. You're not really putting the effort and I can't be the only one working here. You know, that's an okay conversation. I'm fine having that conversation and most therapists uh, should be. But when it comes to this, I think you are completely, it's 100% okay for you to say to your therapist, you know, 
Lately, I've been noticing, and I don't know, you have to, again, you have to practice it so you don't feel so nervous. You forget what to say. Maybe you write it down and read from it. But something like, you know, I, I love seeing you and this has been really helpful for me, but I, I really would wish if you're able for you to prompt me more, like ask me more questions. I feel like if you did that, I'd be more of an open book because I often, you know, and this is where you'd have to like be honest about it. Like I often don't know what to talk about or what order we should go in. And I know there's other things still to tap into. So I don't want to dump too much out. You know, just talk about the confusion of therapy because it really isn't up to you to 100% decide where everything is going and how fast you move. It's like a, it's a give and take with your therapist where they challenge you and push you to do a little more than you think you can, not too much, but, and you let them know where that limit is. And also maybe you can give more and push yourself. You know, it's this like ebb and flow and give and take of therapy. And that's why the therapeutic relationship can be so helpful and such a beautiful thing. Letting her know and even saying like, you know, sometimes when you're quiet or you wait for me to, to start something, my mind just goes blank. And I, and then I can't come up with anything. And then I I'm frustrated. And, you know, instead of feeling like you have to have an answer or even have to ask her to prompt you more, you can just talk about it. I think that's the cool thing about therapy is you don't have to necessarily ask a specific question or have a specific answer. You can just talk about the struggle to get there. So you can talk about the struggle to come up with answers or know what to say in session. I think that is completely fine and acceptable. And I think that that maybe is a way for you to to get her to get to talk about it. And then if you feel comfortable to say like, you know, is it okay for you to just ask me more questions sometimes? Or when things do get quiet, could you prompt me? Because one thing I do also want to highlight and not to get too like off off topic here, but something that therapists do do sometimes in session is let the silence linger because it can tell us a lot about a patient. So for instance, um, if a patient is super anxious, oh my God, silences show like they get visibly uncomfortable, uh, fidget a lot and usually come up with something random to talk about really quickly because it's just too much. So that gives me information. Or my patients who, uh, you know, struggle with like any kind of dissociation and get really charged up about that. If there's silence that goes on, they dissociate and they can't come back. And it's like that pushes them out. So then that tells me that, okay, that's triggering. Well, I wonder why silence is triggering. I know this all sounds maybe silly to you, but as a therapist, sometimes just the experience in the room with a patient tells me more about them. And so that could be what your therapist is doing. And you can ask that. You can say, I don't know if you're letting the silences happen, you know, because you're wanting to, you know, see how I react to it. But, but I do feel like there's still a lot to talk about and I forget what to say and I don't know how to start this, you know, um, it's okay to say those kinds of things because yes, every once in a while you can have a session that's like, you know, you start talking. I've had this happen with my uh, trauma patients off and on is like that we'll start talking about something they dissociate. I can't get them back. They aren't attempting to come back and they're, they're out for the rest of the session. So maybe we have like a 20 minute silence, which, you know it's probably not comfortable for them. And it's not, it's not something I want to have happen, but if there's nothing we can do, or if I don't know they dissociate and I can't, you know, like there's a lot of reasons that can happen and that does happen, but it shouldn't be the norm. It should be something that happens like a one-off. Like I can think of a few patients I've had that happen with over the years and it's usually trauma-based and it's usually because I just can't bring them back and the things we've discussed are, you know, and part of it's like them learning to bring themselves back or keep themselves here and I want them to use their tools and it's really tricky. Right. And so anyways, it's okay to, to mention this to your therapist and talk about your difficulty with it. Now, when you said, can she still ask me questions like, 
were you ever abused or have you ever had experiences you consider traumatic? Um, she may ask you, have you ever had any experiences you consider traumatic? Um, I, I don't know. I don't usually do the, were you ever abused question seems a little bit too much too fast. I'd rather talk about trauma and what that is and let them come, you know, come out with it as they feel safe. But then yes, she could play tennis with you based on your answers. And, and that might just be the type of therapy that you're looking for. And it's okay to let her know that. And hopefully she can rise the occasion and do that for you. Because again, if you're being open and willing to talk about things, and you're working and showing up for therapy, there's no reason she wouldn't do that work for you. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. I hope I wasn't too off topic there, but there's different reasons why therapists can act in different ways. And I just wanted to kind of demonstrate that a little bit. Now, there was a comment below this that said, it's similar. I stopped going to therapy as I felt like I was paying to sit in uncomfortable for me silence and didn't want that. 90% of each, ses of each session was in silence and I couldn't come or can't open up so I stopped after two months, though I know I would benefit from therapy. Wow. Yeah. See, that's too much. And I do have to agree with you that like 90% of sessions shouldn't be in silence. Um, but we also can't force you to open up. And I can see that kind of difficulty because, but, but I would also, okay. So I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> First of all, most of your sessions should not be in silence. There are gaps of silence in conversation. That's normal in therapy and that can feel uncomfortable. And again, it tells us information about ourselves and the therapist can get more information about us based on that. So that happens, but it shouldn't be each and every session for 90% of it. That's not really beneficial. And I understand why you stopped. Um, however, you not being able to open up could come from a lot of, uh, there could be a lot of different reasons for it. One could be that the therapist or their office just isn't that safe feeling or soothing or at least neutral to you. Maybe it's super triggering. Maybe even the thought of going to therapy, Rams, like you get so amped up, you can't calm down, so you can't open up, you know, then that might be what I would encourage you to talk about in therapy is like, hey, coming to therapy stresses me out so much, then I shut down. So we can like try to figure out ways to calm our nervous system, like maybe doing a full body shake, maybe chewing gum or having silly putty or something in your hands, like certain things can help people. Everybody's different, you know, um, try some things out. But I'd like to know why, like you couldn't or can't open up, like what was going on there? Um, were there certain triggers that caused that? Are, has this always been the case? Was that your only experience in therapy? You know, do you think it was the office or the person or do you think it was something that, you know, you feeling overwhelmed? Are there things we could do to calm down? Like, just be curious about it. Like, why is this happening? Hmm, let's figure it out, right? And once we know more, then we can try to do things to help us feel better. Because I have no doubt that you can benefit from therapy, but in order for you to get some benefit, we're going to have to find a way to help you open up. Because without that, your therapist can't read your mind. You know, I mean, it'd be nice if we could, but we can't, so. Okay, let's move on to question number eight says, hi, Katie, how can we as highly sensitive people cope with the intense psychological pain, seeing myself and others suffering in um, wild loneliness? This sounds existential. Life is pain, despite all happiness and meaning. I don't take on people's burden, for I know they aren't my problems, and I can't possibly save others and vice versa. Everyone is so incredibly alone in this pain, knowing that nobody understands the exact pain Though paradoxically, I know that we're all alone and we're all in pain. It's so exhausting to be so sensitive in the, to this never-ending pain. How can I stop feeling such intense pain to the point of barely functioning? This was interesting to me because I consider myself more as of a highly sensitive person. 
but I also feel uh, excitement very intensely. I feel things more intensely and I pick up on it more quickly from others. So I can, but boundaries are really helpful so that I don't pick up on other people's pain and like focus in on the pain. And for, for this, part of me feels like um, you need some healthy thought stopping and distraction techniques because you're getting caught. And that can happen, especially when we're highly sensitive, we can pick up on an emotion and then we get caught in thought cycles that aren't helpful, like this pain spiral that you're in. Um, and we have to get you out. So how do we get you out? Thought stopping techniques, whether it's like, I do these all the time for myself, like stop, 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 because I'll think to myself quickly, I'll be like, is this helping or hindering me? And the answer here for you is it's hindering you because you don't like it, like the intense psychological, it's overwhelming. Okay, so it's hindering. We already know that. That I'm like, stop, 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 Katie, stop. This isn't helpful. Stop, stop, stop. I say it in my head or I say it out loud until it stops. Then I pull my mind into something else. Now, I've talked in the past about like a really emotionally charged memory. That could be really great. Positive only since pain is like what's getting you caught in this spiral. We want it to be like a really peaceful day or a, a wonderful uh, vacation you took or just a really nice time with someone that you love or a day that you had all to yourself that was just so beautiful, like whatever it is, spend your time in that, think about it, be in it, um, allow yourself to go there completely and pull yourself out. Or if that doesn't work or you don't like that, there's distractions. Can we color? Can we journal? Can we draw? Can we watch a show? Can we go for a walk? Can we call a friend? Can we paint our nails? Right? We're not trying to process anything. We're just trying to distract. Can we do any of those things? Because otherwise we get caught in this and these thoughts aren't helpful. And being highly sensitive means that we can pick up on a lot of things, but that doesn't mean we have to pick up a lot of things. And I know that that sounds so silly or so simple. I like simple. And not, I don't know what the word I'm trying to think of, but it's like too simplified, I guess. Um, it could feel like that, but it's the truth. Just because I can feel that someone's uncomfortable in the room doesn't mean that I'm responsible for it. It doesn't mean that I have to actually pick up that feeling and take it with me. That's not having boundaries. That's being like an emotional sponge where you absorb and being highly sensitive means that we are more apt to do that, but we have to recognize. So part of it's like the, the education around ourselves and our experience being more quick to notice like the news for instance would probably not would be something that if I was your therapist I would say you probably shouldn't watch that you probably should unfollow certain things I'm not saying that you should be completely ignorant to what's going on but we definitely have to limit that because we're so sensitive we're going to be like a sponge and we're going to soak it up if we haven't figured out how to like put these boundaries in place and those thought stopping techniques will help also, I have mantras I say to myself all the time where I'm like, that's them, not me. That's them, not me. It's okay. And then also sometimes because things are so overwhelming, I allow myself to cry. And that's okay. And setting aside time, you know, every week to let yourself cry for 10 or 20 minutes, I think is very healthy and very helpful, especially when we can be like these emotional sponges. Um, but boundaries are, are key and probably very difficult for you and difficult for me, but you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Um, seeing a therapist, oh my God, so helpful for me and other people who are sensitive like that. And, you know, being more aware of when we're trying to absorb it and, and not, I mean, there's, you know, and then the thought stopping, bringing your thoughts to somewhere else, all that stuff is really helpful. And I hope at least one of those helps you better cope because you don't have to carry this burden, but without boundaries and healthy conversation with ourselves, we will. 
but being the emotional Sherpa for everyone is exhausting and it's impossible and it, it can, it only harms us. So again, just because we can sense something or feel something in a room or pick up on how people are doing does not mean we have to pick it up. Okay. Let's move on to question number nine. And it says, hi, Katie. Does attachment to our therapist sometimes never go away? Very similar to another question. We had a lot of them like this about attachment. I have a video called uh, attached to, to attached to my therapist or something. You can find it. Um, I have tons of videos about that as well. If you just look on YouTube, Katie Morton, attachment therapist, they'll all pop up. I'm scared I will never get over my attachment to my therapist. I struggled to open up to her at the beginning. And now I've become overly attached to her for a long time. Not seeing her and not having sessions with her makes me anxious and feel left alone. Like a little child that just wants to be with their mommy. Mm, inner child work. Here we go. I never trusted anyone the way that I do my therapist. I don't trust myself enough to be there for myself. I always fear my therapist will leave me and I'll be back to being alone again. How am I supposed to reparent myself like that? I'm scared I'll never get over this attachment and that I'll be left broken and all alone in the end. And I don't want that to happen. Okay. So first of all, um, and the follow-up question is, how do you bring this up in therapy and being scared of the reaction? And I think part of it is bringing this up in therapy and talking about this, just the way you tell me, like, you know, um, I, I fear that I'm becoming attached to you. And I really would like to process this through because I know it's not healthy and I don't want to be dependent on you. I, I know there's some inner child work that has to be done here. What can we do? It's kind of coming at things because I did get a message from someone in our community that they brought this up with their therapist and then they, they tried to like refer them out, but then they kept them and they did that uh, action, I guess, the potential like fake referral out as a way to help them better detach. I don't know. I mean, that's not the way that I go about it, but I it ended up being, I guess, somewhat effective. I'm not sure. It was a little, uh, it seemed a little bit harmful to me, but someone was telling me about that and I was, I was really sad that the therapist reacted poorly initially to this. And so I think the best way for us to address it and bring it up in therapy is to say something like what I just said, where it's like, hey, I'm recognizing this. I don't like it. I know it's not healthy. I know there's probably inner child work we can do. Can we start that stuff? Because I, I, you know, I, I don't want this feeling to continue or to grow. Okay. And the inner child work, again, wanting to be with your mom, like that's how I, I want you to be curious and be a detective about this, where we kind of dig into what is it our therapist gives us that is so soothing? Why is it that we want to be with them and we feel like our mom kind of like they they're there, they're like our caretaker? Identify those things, get to, a you know, work to get to the point where you can identify what things your therapist offers to you that is that is so needed for you. And then I want you to try just pick one. And try to find a way to give that to yourself. And I know everybody's like, but it's just not the same. It's just not the same. Okay, maybe it's not the same, but guess what? It's healthier to be able to give ourselves these things rather than to always be looking out into our world for someone else to. Because guess what? People are unreliable. People have their own shit going on. And we just can't count on people like that. And I know people are like, well, that's really depressing. What about dates and marriages? You still can't. I'm not going to put all of my emotional uh, security and well-being into someone else because what if they're having a bad day and they can't be where I need them to be? They can't show up for me. Then what? I'm fucked? I don't like that. That's, that doesn't allow for any kind of stability for me. 
that's too volatile because I cannot control other people. I can only control myself. So when you consider the things your therapist gives you, what are the things that you can also give yourself? Like validation. Can we talk to ourselves more kindly? Can we validate the emotions and the experiences that we had? Can we remind ourselves how hard that was and how bad that was and how it's okay for us to feel this way? That could be very mothering, very healing. Can we do that? Yes, we can. It takes effort and takes work, but we can do it. Or can we tend to ourselves a little bit more, show up for ourselves consistently? So when we are uh, journaling or when we are taking a break and taking some time for ourselves, can we be present with it and enjoy it and do the things that feel good? Can we make time for that? That's showing up for ourselves too. You know, I don't know what it is, but I would like, uh, I'd let, allow yourself to be curious so you can figure it out, what it is that she does give you that makes you want to be around her so much. And hopefully that will help you kind of not necessarily heal, but it's like fill that mom void or that uh, caretaker void that you are experiencing that you've now tried to fill fill with your therapist. Because if we don't switch that out, switch your therapist out for other things, then we can, when therapy ends, feel left and feel uh, wounded and feel almost re-traumatized sometimes. So I hope that that helps. And also, again, my inner child uh work videos out there in the world so you can find that and hopefully that helps and hopefully that also helps is how you bring this up in therapy because the person said I can't bring myself to talk about it because I'm so scared of her reaction and scared she might refer me to someone else do CBT trained therapists generally generally learn how to deal with attachment and transference or is this something that they don't really believe in I can't imagine a CBT trained therapist not believing in it um and we're all taught it I would assume in school I was taught it in school not like we were taught CBT techniques and other types of therapy, as well as attachment and transference is something you talk about immediately because it has to do not only with the way that we meet patients in session, but also legal and ethical things. And so that's part of, I believe, every therapeutic schooling. I can't imagine. So from, again, I'm not a CBT trained therapist. That's not like my specialty. I didn't go to like a CBT school or anything, but I would say that every mental health professional is aware of attachment and transference and counter-transference for that matter, because, you know, we talk about it so much. It was something that was like drilled into my brain through school. So there, I don't think there's any way that anyone could avoid it, no matter what they're trained in. Like if you guys know, I do a lot of CBT as well as DBT in my private practice. And I know about it. Um, again, I'm not like, I don't specialize. Like I'm not like a, I only do CBT. Um, but, but yeah, I hope that helps. Okay, let's move on to our final question. Question number 10. It reads, Hi, Katie. I feel like this is a dumb question. There are no dumb questions, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do your patients always have something to talk about every time they come into therapy? Every time they come, do you talk about new things or the things that you talked about last time? I, I'm a builder. I build on past ones. Um, what I mean is that my therapist always asks me to tell her something new that we can talk about. And I do tell her, but I don't always know what to say. Like, I can't be talking 45 minutes about something new. And my old issues aren't even gone. So I'm not sure what I need to talk about. The last two times we were talking about random and off topic things, because I didn't know what else to say. And she didn't know either. Hmm, that's a little bothersome, a little worrisome. What I would actually encourage you to do is when she says, tell me something new, which is interesting that she even does that because I but to each their own. I'll tell you something new. I would bring up an old issue and say, this is something that happened, you know, back in the day, but we've never actually talked about it. And I remember something new or here's something else that's bothering me about it that 
we haven't talked about before. I would bring up an old new thing, if that makes sense. Because like I said, I'm a builder. Now that doesn't mean that as I build on things and work through things, because I keep notes about what homework I gave you and what we talked about in bullet points. And I follow up. You best be believing. I don't forget, even though my patients always would wish that I would. Well, not always, but like 90%. And I don't forget. And I follow up and we, because we're working toward goals. And so you might even say to your therapist, like, hey, you know, I, I, I realize we've never talked about goals in therapy. Could we put those together or set something up? I was one of my friends, you can just make this up even one of my friends or this therapist I listened to online was telling me about treatment plans. And I think it would help me to have one of those. Could we do one of those? Most therapists, like I can't imagine a therapist not knowing how to do one of those. If you worked in any kind of facility at all, you had to do those. I just can't imagine. But at the very least, you should set some goals. You don't have to have like a formal treatment plan, but you should have some goals and then work backward from those. And so those that's those are kind of the ways that I would address this. Because if you like your therapist and you want to keep seeing her and you think it's working, we we have to make it work for you. We have to be working toward goals and we have to be able to bring up old issues to work through them so that we're not just like mentioning them for 50 minutes once a week and then moving on to another thing. That's actually nothing gets resolved in one. Well, not nothing, but not much can get resolved in one session. And so what you're going through is obviously very valid and it makes sense. And I would want to talk about my old issues too, because you said they're not gone. So you still need to talk about them. And I would just bring those up and, you know, just because she says, tell me something new, you don't have to, you can also push back and say, I don't actually have anything new, but I do want to revisit blah, blah, blah. You know what I mentioned like a few months ago, I really want to talk about that and go there because you can drive the session. It might be a habit that your therapist has gotten into. Maybe it worked really well with one patient. So they're trying it again with you is very possible. Is that something new uh, question, but you don't have to answer it. And to answer your question directly, you said, do your patients always have something to talk about every time they come into therapy? No. A lot of times they don't. Um, a lot of times the patients will say, I did not think we would go that, that direction today, but I'm glad we did. Or, wow, we really got into things. I was not prepared. And so, again, because therapy is kind of this push-pull, this like relationship, there can be times when I'm going to ask something or follow up with something that, because I will also just as a FYI, I don't do this all the time, but sometimes for my patients, if I feel like we've been stagnant for a while, I will take time after I'm usually, it's usually at the end of my day when I'm done seeing patients, I'll flip through their file and look back at what we've been working on. And if there's something that just we haven't quite resolved, I'll bring that back up. And so I'll do that sometimes as a way to kind of like reignite things so that we continue to move forward. Again, not working harder than my patients, but working just as hard for them so that they can maybe see some things that we didn't get a chance to get to when we talked about that the first time or something like that. Um, but yeah, they don't always have something to talk about. And sometimes the funny thing is, is that I'll have something that I think we should talk about and they take it in a whole different direction. And so it can kind of, you know, go both ways, but I'm more apt to let a patient run the session that way. As long as I think it's constructive, you know, I'm not going to force my will or, or push an issue. If I just don't think today is the day for it, I'll let them talk about whatever. Cause sometimes you just don't know, right? Like a week could have during that week, you could have had a fight with someone or, uh, had an issue at work and you want to vent about it. And sometimes that's all we need is just, we need a session for venting and I'm totally open to that. Okay. I hope that that helps. Um, you don't always have to know what you're going to talk about. It's a, that's why it's a relationship. That's why it's some give and take and you kind of work with your therapist and 
And that's why it's important that we like our therapist and that we feel supported by him or her. And it can help us. They're kind of, they help us guide us toward where we want to go. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that these answers were helpful. As always, your answers are wonderful. And I'm sure they help so many more people other than just you. And if you forgot, the last two questions that I select are just random. I like scroll through the comments and just stop it at one and pick them um, so that people who maybe don't have as many thumbs ups or didn't get their question in until much later, I heard from a lot of you that that's usually the case, um, that you still have an opportunity to get your questions answered as well. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Make sure you're doing something nice for yourself, even if it's just doing that nothing. Remember, again, thinking about what nothing looks like, because for me, nothing is ordering food in and watching NCIS on Netflix. And maybe that works for you. You could do it. It's easy peasy. Um, maybe that's something you can do, but do something nice for yourself, even if that is go to bed a little bit earlier. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all the nice reviews and all the things that you guys have left. That really, really makes my day. Um, and please share this podcast where you can. I will see you next week. Bye.